most politicians, knowing what Don Jr. knew before he convened that meeting, and by the way, what the others who went to the meeting also knew, mm -hmm. they would not have touched that meeting with a 10-foot pole. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, executive editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington, D.C. today, and I'm joined in the studio by Evelyn Farkas. She's a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and national security analyst for NBC, MSNBC. She served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia from 2012 to 2015. We're also joined in the studio by FP's intelligence reporter, Jenna McLaughlin. And in New York, we've got Sam Biddle. He's a technology reporter at The Intercept. And in Moscow, Amy Ferris Rotman, our correspondent, is joining us by Skype. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So I've been thinking the last few days about the subject of Russian collusion. And, and more importantly, what constitutes, I mean, for those of us who have been sort of engrossed in these issues for a while, of what exactly constitutes proof of Russian collusion. And Amy, I was fascinated by the article that you wrote for us here at FP last week, where you said, quote, the trio that staged the now infamous meeting with Donald Trump Jr. was a motley crew, a B-list Azerbaijani pop singer, a former British tabloid reporter, and a suburban lawyer. Until very recently, none of those involved looked like real players in Moscow, where, po where power is determined by proximity to one man. And, you know, I, I was read that and thinking, you know, does, does half a dozen clowns in a room constitute a conspiracy or a circus? <laughs> and, and which is it? I mean, can you walk us through these people who have been portrayed here as part of this sort of a grand conspiracy? But I think from the, the vantage point of Moscow looks a little bit different. Absolutely. And um, I think the word circus is, is much more appropriate than grand conspiracy. I mean, these characters, no one, almost no one had heard of them. The only one someone had, I mean, obviously people had heard of the pop singer, but not in any context politically at all. Um, so basically, we've got this Azeri Russian pop star, Emin Agalarov, who is, I mean, Russians think he's only famous because his father is a billionaire and because he created a venue where Emin is able to perform. So that's him. And then we've got Rob Goldstone, who seems to be this kind of very bizarre British uh, guy with a, an affinity for Russia, who has a fondness for hats uh, and putting strange pictures on the internet and doesn't seem to have wield any real power at all in the Russian world. And then we have Natalia Veselnitska, who is probably of the three weird players in this Donald Trump Jr. meeting, is the only one with any clout. But even she doesn't have that much clout at all. To be honest, the Russians are taking this um, with humor. Well, Veselnitska, let's talk about her for a second. I mean, she, you know, she seems to be sort of reveling in the attention she's getting here. Is that is that a correct impression? I think she's loving it. Um, yeah, she's, you know, you just go to her Facebook page and it's full of uh, selfies um, and all sorts of glamorous photo shoots before this happened. So um, I'm pretty sure she likes being in the limelight. And this has only enhanced that. She's given loads of interviews to Western press, which in itself is probably proof that she doesn't have much power in, in the Kremlin and in Russia. You know, people who are very high up to Putin do not readily speak to the Western press. So, I mean, I think that's a dead giveaway right there. Right, you're shaking your head here. I am shaking my yeah, head. So. I don't agree. I mean, I think, yeah, they 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 seem a little silly in, if you cast it in the light that your correspondent has just cast it in. But the reality is this is not funny. I mean, this is at least an attempt at conspiracy, if not an actual conspiracy, which obviously 
you know, the former FBI director, now special investigator Robert Mueller will tell us. But this is not funny. And Veselnitskaya, she is absolutely connected to Kremlin cronies. Her former father-in-law was the deputy minister of transportation for the Moscow region. She herself has made a lot of money basically helping with land deals in and around Moscow itself. So she's part of that oligarch network. And she was the lawyer who was facilitating, again, takeovers of land in order to build things like shopping malls. And the Aguilara family, of course, they made a lot of money on these shopping malls and these real estate deals. So I would not minimize her at all. She might be cute and relatively young, but she's dead serious. Can it be funny and criminal at the same time? Yes. <laughs> okay. Is she just a fool? I mean, why, why is she granting all these? No, interviews? she's absolutely not. She's a very rich, smart woman. And she's doing so what, this. What's the strategy there? I'm I'm genuinely curious. I don't know. Well, my read of this, you know, obviously I don't know what I don't know. I only know what the media has put out for us to see, but it's pretty damning so far. You know, at the minimum, she's doing the Kremlin's bidding to overturn the Magnitsky sanctions. That she herself has said she's doing, that's clear. And the Magnitsky sanctions were put in place because, frankly speaking, Russia officialdom, there's no way to put it in a good light, murdered Sergei Magnitsky, the lawyer slash accountant who was working for Bill Broder and his company and uncovered basically the, how the takeover went down and how the money was taken. And by the way, one of Veselnitskaya's key clients, the person that she actually was allowed to come to the United States to represent, was somebody who, according to the U.S. government, benefited from that takeover of Bill Browder's company, from the money laundering, from the tax fraud that Magnitsky uncovered, and took the money and, and laundered it in the United States. And basically settled a court case against him for $6 million. So he didn't admit that he did it, but the U.S. government was alleging that. Well, let's uh, so let's take it back to Moscow for a second. So for Amy, for Veselnitskaya, talk about what constitutes someone, from the vantage point of Moscow, what constitutes someone being close to the Kremlin or close to Putin? From, from, from the vantage point of Moscow, how do people look at power there? I mean, first of all, I mean, if, if it were a conspiracy, I mean, I really think Veselnitska would have delivered the goods um, that, you know, were allegedly promised. And, and she didn't. She just wanted to talk about the Magnitsky Act. Um, but we don't so know. I, we don't actually know what went on in that room. In terms of, I mean, going what you said about how power is determined, I mean, it, it, there's concentric circles, much in the way the Moscow city is mapped out. And, um, you know, you've got the Kremlin at the very center, and then you've got all of the outer rings that go around it. And, Power is concentrated around one man, Vladimir Putin. Um, and of course, he has the people around him who have been in government for a very, very long time. They are viewed with enormous fear by the majority, fear and, and respect, a kind of strange combination by the general population. They're also very well heard of. And while they're household names to Russians, and Veselnitskaya um, was obviously known for her campaign against the Magnitsky Act, but she is, was a nobody in Russia. I mean, dealing in terms of what it means to be powerful in Russia, um, she, she doesn't have billions. And, and that's all it boils down to here in the end of the day. Unlike Emin Agalarov's father, I mean, he, he does have billions and he is connected to the Kremlin in, in a different way. 
Sam, let me ask you a question. So I remember you sort of started off, if I remember right, um, a little bit on the side of the skeptic. You wrote in December about the evidence of, of Russia collusion and the hacking and interference in the elections. You wrote, but again, no one has actually proven the group is the Russian government or works for it. This remains the enormous inductive leap that's not been reckoned with and Americans de- deserve better. And that's why I was so fascinated then by the article you wrote last week where you've, I mean, I could be misinterpreting, but you sort of come around a little bit. And the headline is, just six days after Trump Jr.'s meeting, Guccifer 2.0 emailed me, but there is one key difference. So can you talk a little bit about what you've written recently on that? Starting last summer when I was first contacted by Guccifer, so much, and and also having covered the uh, hack of Sony um, that was attributed to uh, North Korea by a lot of the same private forensics firms, I didn't think that anyone should be satisfied with the level of uh, circumstantial forensic stuff that was offered regarding Guccifer. I still think it's a little, I mean, it's not quite enough to base uh, major policy decisions around. But what's really done it for me is all of this day after day of there being smoke uh, about this. You know, the amount of incriminating or baffling or otherwise you know, strange-looking meetings and connections uh, between people in the Trump orbit and people in the Putin orbit, the, the coincidences don't occur on that, on that scale. And the lack of any compelling uh, counter-narrative, I think, is also uh, pretty major and, and impossible to ignore. Um, if, if it wasn't Russia, it had to have been someone, right? And there's not a single uh, non- Alex Jones kind of explanation for who it could have been. So yeah, I, I have really come around uh, over the past uh, year. But as far as the Guccifer stuff, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that since last June. So so what happened? So six days after this now infamous meeting of, you know, various right. <laughs> connected people, you were emailed. And, and what happened precisely? So I was working at uh, Gawker at the time, and we received an email uh, just in our general tips line, which you know, was bombarded all the time by a lot of stuff that was uh, never ended up going anywhere. But uh, it was it was an outlandish email claiming to be this person who was inspired by Kuchifer 1.0, who, of course, uh, was famous for uh, revealing George W. Bush's oil paintings to the world, among other uh, A uh, public papers. service but, to us. Yes. Yeah, truly. But just he, he emailed us saying, uh, I have I'm the one who would have I am uh, Romanian. I'm fighting the Illuminati. Just a lot of cartoonish kind of stuff. And I thought it was either just a crank or, you know, uh, or, or someone just messing with me um, in some other way. And so I emailed back. And after a few exchanges, well, we started getting uh, documents that could have only originated from within the Democratic Party. And and this was, like I said, just six days after that meeting. And so what is your thinking? I mean, obviously, you didn't have that connection now. So, I mean, as we all ask ourselves with all these stories, do you now look at this as a coincidence or as possible proof that this was part of, I don't know what to call it, a conspiracy, I guess? I don't see it as proof, but I also, it would be just one hell of a coincidence. The, the, the timing is so tight between these two events. And although the documents that Gucci first started sending me were not exactly the documents referenced in the email thread that Trump Jr. bafflingly tweeted out. They were (laughs) sort of similar. I mean, documents referenced in uh, the Trump Jr. email thread, they were supposed to be incriminating documents about Hillary Clinton's uh, dealings with Russia in one way or another, some, you know, campaign finance stuff or party finance stuff. They had nothing to do with Russia, but they were a lot of DNC or DCCC uh, 
financial documents, funding, you know, funder uh, right. donor right. roles, that sort of thing. So, I mean, it doesn't align 100%, but it was at least similar. And given that so many of these people seem incompetent or, you know, clueless in some other way, it, I think it's possible that they just didn't know what they had and it was just a mistake. But something that also struck me about Gujifer all along was that he never really seemed very sure of what he or they, I don't know, who knows, it could have been a whole team of people, but he never really seemed sure what he was in possession of when I was talking with him, which was so strange. Yeah. I mean, Jenna, on Friday, you had an article about a State Department official who was described as the U.S. government's top Russian intelligence expert whose email was hacked and that you wrote about on Friday. One of the things that was so fascinating about the first communication from the hacker, they didn't seem to quite know what they had. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right. That was really interesting. When we were first contacted, the hacker who went by Johnny Walker, whose email has since disappeared. Of course. Uh, you <laughs> has know, to be Johnny of Walker. Of course. You know, we got lots of jokes about that one, uh, the alcohol connection. They said that they had these documents from somebody in the CIA and they may have perhaps confused this person with someone else in the Pentagon, and it seemed like they weren't really sure what was going on. But kind of the broader description of the And yet the person they hacked was significant. Right, exactly, exactly. And you have to think that that was on purpose, um, right. at least to some extent, just because this official is, honestly, I got from a source, you know, the top person in the entire U.S. government on um, intelligence in Russia. They know more about what's going on there than anybody else. All the communications, regardless of their being personal or not, kind of touched on Russia and Moscow and what's going on there. Yeah, so hard. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine that this was a you know random Romanian hacker who went after that person. But yet we right. don't you know we don't have the evidence. So, Evelyn, turning back to you. So just a couple hours before this podcast, because I yeah I checked Donald Trump's tweets. Donald Trump, his <laughs> most recent tweet was most poli- and this is a repeat of what he said before, but he decided to tweet it again this morning. Most politicians would have gone to a meeting like the one Don Jr. attended in order to get info on an opponent. That's political. Um, do you agree with that? Do you see most politicians having gone to a meeting with this Not colorful with cast of characters? Not with Russians. I mean, if it, most politicians, knowing what Don Jr. knew before he convened that meeting, and by the way, what the others who went to the meeting also knew, mm-hmm. they would not have touched that meeting with a 10-foot pole right. because it's a foreign government giving you the information. So you know you're already being manipulated by a foreign government, number one. Number two, this particular government was one that we were already in an adversarial relationship with. And by then, I think, I don't know the exact timeline. You may know it better, Jenna. But in Washington, I know I had I had reporters calling me. I know people knew that there was some funny business going on with the elections already by the summer, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. and so involving Russians. So the fact that he would take this meeting and, of course, what he himself wrote in the emails demonstrates that they were willing and enthusiastic about collaborating <laughs> with an adversarial foreign government, which is against the law, unethical, and absolutely puts the United States and Americans in danger. Let's play devil's advocate for a second. So before we had information about this, we had, of course, the infamous dossier, which was paid for, as you know, I think has been widely reported, by Democratic opposition funds through GPS fusion to gather dirt 
from Russians on Trump. So what is the difference between these two? I mean, I can already start to guess what you would say the difference in terms of collecting opposition research. Yeah, I'm not sure, though, because my understanding was that originally it was Republican Party opposition research. And then later it was Democrats. So they was, were both It was a can- another candidate or candidates were collecting dirt on Donald Trump for the primaries. After the primaries, of course, they were like, we don't need this. Here, <laughs> maybe they passed it to the Democrats or, or maybe the company went to the Democrats and said, again, Jenna, you may know this better than me. But anyway, the big difference is, you know, the, that was an American company. Those were Americans. By American. That's the right. Yeah. I don't think we've seen the last of the dossier. I, I really don't. I agree. I agree. <laughs> In the case of the dossier, there was also a lot of insulation between uh, the candidates yes. and, and the dirt digging, right. whereas Trump right. Jr. just showed up. The line between diabolical and really dumb has been exposed here is really narrow. Um, but <laughs> I, I think that in the case of the dossier, there, you know, Clinton uh, and the Clinton campaign were so many degrees removed right. from that stuff. I think that's a pretty key difference. And also intentionally. I mean, again. Right. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and, I mean, and the is, line from smart. Putin <laughs> to Trump, the chain was pretty small. You know, Putin oh, to right, right. Which, which is which is crazy. Bezolnitskaya but... <laughs> to Trump. Right. <laughs> so taking us again back to Moscow, Amy, I mean, you know, we were talking a little bit before the podcast about this sort of alternate reality for those of you in Moscow looking at all of this. So let's take something specific. I mean, the, the pop star. You talked a little bit about who he is. How does he know Trump? And how did he get involved in this meeting? Well, I mean, it's a personal it's a personal relationship. I mean, was um, he got to know Trump when uh, Trump was in Moscow and in, in for the last time he was here in 2013 when he hosted his Miss Universe contest. And he held it in the Crocus City Hall, this very lush new development, which um, Emin's father built. And uh, so that's where he, when he met him. They also did a music video together, um, which which is very bizarre. And after they did the music video together, Emin um, started doing the kind of pointed finger gesture that Trump is known for. Um, and also he, he was full of praise for him on his various social media outlets as well, kind of, you know, saying how great he thinks Trump is this way before the election um, and during and after. So, yeah, so that that's how he knows him. It's through this kind of show business world. And that's also how Rob Goldstone got involved as well. But I mean, I just, I know it's, it's it's a very frustrating issue. And all of us in Moscow are deeply frustrated by this and by, by the kind of constant smoke and, and never finding the fire, um, the kind of dribble of smoke. And there is a lot of talk here about coincidence as well. And obviously, while uh, it, it would be ridiculous to say all of this is a coincidence, I do think that a lot of people need to think that the way, you know, things operate here, and this goes for this, this pop star as well, there's a lot of people in Russia, in Moscow, who are trying to impress Putin, who do not actually know him and do not have access to him. And it's it's sort of like that line that James Comey used in his, you know, congressional hearing. Uh, well, no, and he was describing Trump. Well, no one rid me of this troublesome priest. <laughs> I really actually think that that sums up a lot of how Moscow operates. So a lot of people want to impress Putin and get on his good books. And they've wanted to do this for years. You know, somewhere up top, of course, I'm sure there was interest in bringing down Hillary Clinton. Um, I think we all know that's a fact now. And from from the Kremlin, I mean, and all sorts of people in Russia have probably since mobilized to try and do that in all sorts of different ways. 
Mm-hmm. What about the newest name that uh, I think it was just over the weekend that we have yet another name of? I mean, this is sort of the meeting where, you know, who's who of like weird Russian society. So the, the newest name is Renat Khmetshin. Can you tell us a little bit about him and his role? I mean, again, he he's uh, another person who is is not particularly well known here. He's he moved to America to do business. He was in the KGB, but I mean, again, I I do think that there there is a lot of exaggeration. At least I I believe so, um, and a lot of the journalists here think so as well. A lot of the foreign press, I mean, in terms of what is considered toxic, what is considered, um, you know, evil, uh, you know, the, the being in the KGB does not necessarily mean that you are therefore equated to someone who's going to try derail American democracy and kind of, you know, bring down America. So, I mean, so a, lot of, a lot of emphasis was put, was put on that. But he's not anyone who was, he was just known as a Russian businessman who moved to America to make money. And suddenly he's appeared now in this meeting. Yeah. But I'm, I'm sure that others will appear as well, who I think will be equally um, not as important. So it'll be a, a yet more list of characters. You still are very deep. You disagree with this a lot. So please. I really do, because I think it's just downplaying how serious this is. And, you know, this guy, regardless of whether he was involved in this election business and providing this information that he he said that Veselnitskaya gave Donald Trump about donors to the DNC. So we know from him, actually, that she did come with some information for Donald Jr. He said he didn't know whether it was left behind or not. He thinks it was left behind. Um, but he he provided us with a lot of information on that. But he is clearly important in that he is a man who is lobbying. He should have reported it with the U.S. government. He didn't. But he's a lobbyist and he's lobbying on behalf of the Russian government to lift the Magnitsky sanctions. When they talk about adoptions, it's not about adoptions. It's about lifting the Magnitsky sanctions. But that, and that does seem to be the major focus of the meeting. I mean, people seem to agree on that point. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I mean, uh, Russia's main uh, goal at the moment and, and since they've been imposed has been to get those sanctions lifted. I mean, it's it's been absolute, even though they deny it, it's been absolutely horrific for the economy here. And uh, uh, Putin's apparent affinity for, for, for Trump came from the fact that he thought that he would lift them. I agree that a lot of meetings took place, will t- you know, and probably will take place with that in mind, whether or not they were actually uh, to the to what extent it was all kind of carefully designed with a blueprint from the Kremlin um, and to install Trump in power. That's where I that's where I, I think things get a bit exaggerated in the West. Yeah. So I would just say, using the words of the correspondent, you know, Putin doesn't have to give a blueprint as long as they know his intent. Mm-hmm. They, they don't need right. a blueprint. I almost feel like both of these things can be true. I mean, from yes. what I've read and talked to intelligence professionals about, this sort of meeting could be in itself incredibly meaningless. It could have been, you know, 20 minutes long, nothing of substance was exchanged, things like that. But it could have been sort of a test balloon to establish the willingness of the Trump team to become involved in this relationship. And I, I mean, I think if we find out about meetings after that point, um, things might get a little or bit more interesting. Or before that point. Or meetings with different members of the Trump network, because obviously it's not just Don Jr. And I mean, people have been calling him the Fredo of the group. I mean, maybe we're just seeing <laughs> this is one the meeting circus, one meeting that's the circus with these weird characters. I mean, maybe with somebody else that's in the Trump team, there might have been a more substantive exchange. So you can't have a conspiracy yet. of clowns. That's the, um, the possible I, I just think that both here. can be true. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, on that, um, thank you for joining us on the ER. I uh, spent a little bit of this morning actually watching the video that Amin made that Donald Trump oh, senior makes. <laughs> no, no. And so with us, we're having Jenna read the first couple lines. Now that it is a tradition that I read song lyrics on. <laughs> In other words, we watch this FP video podcast. so that you don't have to. <laughs> Please, Jenna, um, take yes, it away. So Amin's song, In Another Life, it goes on through the night, through the empty skies, to the dark unknown, because you all alone with me. You can keep the lights on. We can keep till night gone, but we'll still be falling apart. In another life, we would be together. This would last forever. Maybe not this time, but I'll find you again, again, again. Oh, how sweet. And on that note, <laughs> wow. thank you for joining us on the ER. Thank you all for being here. Please join us again this week on episode two. You've been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.